0: Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin.
1: Tonight we have two lovely authors that will be reading and conversing about their novels that both center around the wives of scientists working on the Manhattan Project. Tara Shea Nesbitt is from Dayton, Ohio, a Manhattan Project location. Her debut novel of The Wives of Los Alamos was an Indie's Choice debut pick, a New York Times Review editor's choice, and a finalist for the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize, among many other notable recognitions. She's here to talk with Elizabeth Church about her debut novel, The Atomic Weight of Love. Elizabeth is from Los Alamos, New Mexico and practiced law for over 30 years. As a lawyer, she honed her writing skills by writing for legal publications and scientific journals. Atomically of Love has been widely talked about and well reviewed and was picked as a great read in May by the Andy Next list, which is a recommendations list by independent booksellers from around the country. Without further ado, if you could please join me in welcoming our two authors.
2: Talked uh, in the back, Tara and I, and Caroche um, and I, and what we'd like to do is kind of talk in general about our books, and then we have a conversation to have together. And please feel free to interrupt and ask questions. And we'll have hopefully uh, an interesting time tonight talking about Los Alamos and the changes in the world that that have come about. So a little bit about the book from about my book, The Atomic Weight of Love. There are several themes operating in my book. One is kind of the umbrella for the book, which is a love song to the landscape of northern New Mexico, to the mountains of northern New Mexico. It's where I grew up, and it's a landscape I absolutely adore. And as a matter of fact, it was interesting. When I wrote the book, I was living in Albuquerque and had lived there for over 40 years, And I didn't think I would move back to Los Alamos. But after writing the book, I thought, I have to get back there to the landscape Mm -hmm. and to be able to hike while my decrepit knees would still let me do that. So I actually have moved back to Los Alamos after an absence of over 40 years. And so it's been interesting. Um, Primarily, though, the book for me is a way of honoring the women that I grew up with in Los Alamos. Um, My father was a research chemist who worked on the Manhattan Project and my mother was a biologist. And the women who married the the scientists who worked on the bomb, they were no fools. They tended to be extremely well-educated. But they went to this isolated town in New Mexico away from all of the university towns they'd been used to, the culture they'd been used to, the museums, the books, the university campuses. And they gave up their careers and their ambitions because it was understood at that time that the man's career took precedence. And so when I left Los Alamos, I started thinking about the fact that I had, for example, been told to go across the street for help with my math And that the woman across the street who helped me with my math was a Ph.D. mathematician. I didn't know that wasn't the way the world really worked. (laughs) And so I started realizing the kinds of women who had helped to form me and whose formidable energy and talents had helped to form me and the other children in Los Alamos at that time. And I thought, what could they have been and done if they had had the opportunities that I won as a result of the women's movement. So part of this story, actually the major part of this story, is a woman named Meridian who, as a young girl growing up in Pennsylvania in the 1920s, 1930s, wants to be an ornithologist. She wants to study birds. She makes a lot of sacrifices to get to the University of Chicago, where she's studying. She's getting her bachelor's degree, And she goes and attends a lecture by a physics professor who's talking about the physics of flight, how it works, what the concepts of lift are, about reduction of weight by hollow bones in a bird. And she's fascinated by this. He's a brilliant physicist, and he is recruited to go to Los Alamos to work on the Manhattan Project. She eventually follows him out to New Mexico, and they make an agreement for one year... She'll put off her graduate studies. She's been accepted to Cornell. I see a smirk. (laughs) She'll put off her studies for one year. And um, then she'll be able to go back and get her PhD. And and the question becomes then, whose career wins? And in those times, relationships were not negotiated. We negotiate now, and we talk about at least hopefully we do about where we're going to live and whose career will take precedence at different times but that wasn't what happened then so this is a question about the sacrifices we make in relationships the deference of dreams and 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 issues about how that happens and how where sacrifice in love is appropriate and noble and where it's self-abnegation and tragic so those are the main theories uh, themes operating in the book and I'll just say a little tiny bit more and that is how I came to write this book um, I, I was told by my publisher I was going to hide the fact that I turned 60 this year but I'm told I'm supposed to celebrate that so you get to help <laughs> me celebrate that I'm 60 when my first novel comes out but that's a good thing And I'll tell you why. I practiced law, yes. I was unhappy practicing law. But I had always wanted to be a writer. I wrote my first novel on my bedroom floor, eight years old, using my father's royal typewriter. Um, I made covers for it. It was fully illustrated. And I kept writing. But when when the time came for me to say I'm going to be a writer, I listened to the naysayers who said, you can't make any money. It's impractical. You can't do this. And I went to law school because that's practical. And I was miserable. What finally got me off my square on the chessboard and told me where sacrifice was no longer appropriate and that life was short was that my husband died prematurely. I watched him die over the course of a year. And I watched him come to terms to some degree, who can, frankly, with the fact that he would never do certain things, and all the dreams that he'd put aside that would never be fulfilled, the places we were not going to go together that we thought we would go together, all of those things. So after he died, I thought, how do I bring some tiny fragment, some neutron of meaning to his death? And I thought, what I can do is not waste the rest of my life doing something I'm miserable at, I can take a risk and go after what I always wanted. And I won't die with the same kind of regret. And so that's what I've done. Um, I can say that I have a lot of insomniac nights where I think, oh, no. So you all have to buy my book. Because... (laughs) Otherwise, you know, what what I have I've made an arrangement where I can put my refrigerator box if I'm homeless behind the public library in Los Alamos, New Mexico and get free Wi-Fi. So, but I'll have a smile on my face because I did what I thought I should do. So, that's a lot of what this book is about. Is not not letting your dreams sit on a shelf, but really going after them and having the courage to make your life feel fulfilled.
0: I'm so glad that you mentioned that it was this love song to the landscape because I felt that at every turn um, how much you were honoring the place and how it was a story of love and grief and hope and also where you where you take off so whereas my book's the Wives of Los Alamos starts in World War II, Los Alamos. The women leave um, where, wherever they came from across the country. They don't know where they're going and they get to New Mexico and it's how they establish the city and how they make do. Your book is going really from that point and what happens during the Cold War and how do they grow and change and what changes and what doesn't change. So it's really lovely. Congratulations on the book. And I love your introduction. Um, I wanted to ask you questions to start things off. Um, first of all, how did you, because your story, you have a lot of nonfictional elements, meaning that you grew up in Los Alamos and your dad was a scientist and you've returned there now. How did you decide to choose to write fiction rather than nonfiction?
2: I, it, fiction was always my dream. I'd certainly been writing a lot of. Nonfiction, unless you count legal briefs, which probably are a mixture of fiction <laughs> no, no, and non-fiction. <laughs> I, if I'm being honest um, but i i fiction lets and i'm not I, and i 'm speaking more to the audience than you you know very well it lets you play with things it lets you put put things in an order that helps you to tell the story in a more meaningful moving way um, I could. For example, one of the things that happens in my character Meridian's life is in very early 1970, she meets a Vietnam veteran who um, is a geologist working up in Los Alamos, and he becomes a catalyst in her life. He helps her see how the world has changed for women, and he helps her rethink male-female relationships, how how they have changed, how hers can change, Um, Her husband is 20 years older than she is. The Vietnam veteran is 20 years younger. I get to do that in fiction. Um, Real life might be harder to do. (laughs) Okay. Um, Do you ever,
0: you know, grow... Okay, so... I wrote this book about Los Alamos. You wrote this book about Los Alamos. And my biggest fear when the book was about to go to publication was that I would have a large audience of people who grew up in Los Alamos and who would say, you've gotten it wrong. Let me tell you. And I think in a way that meant that I really tried to do as much research as I could, though I did not get everything right. For instance, um, I have received emails saying, It never got to 100 degrees on X day in 1943. Um, And like maps that indicated that. And I'm like, okay, maybe it wasn't 103. But um, nevertheless, that anxiety was there. And so I wonder for you, did you have any anxiety about getting it wrong? Um, About knowing that you're writing about people that are still alive and will come to your readings? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um,
2: uh, I... Certainly, I, I was very fortunate in that I, I, I have my brother, Alan, who's here tonight, and he read a very early, very bulky draft of the book. Um, imagine this book three times bigger. And um, he plowed through it and said to me things like, oh, no, Ashley Pond was blah, 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 and you've got to move. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, He's probably saved me a lot of those embarrassing, painful moments. But I will say, um, I've been traveling now for a couple months to promote the book, and the the reading I dread the most is next week at the public library in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Um, I have encouraged them to make maybe make it really late at night, so that the people who are are still alive who were there um, will not be saying things to me like, "Well, they'll appear with more more post-its than I've got on the book, certainly." And they will definitely say things like, it was dragon drugs at that time. It was not Anderson drugs, which I realize now, yes, that's true. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, nervous about that. But I also have a pat answer, which is fiction. <laughs> so that's there's right. the beauty of fiction that, that I didn't mention earlier.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I've, I've added to that now where I talk about how... Um, and I do believe this is to be true. This isn't pretend. Um, that in a lot of ways fiction is more honest than nonfiction because I'm saying that it's a curation right so I'm, I'm, I'm doing the research and then I'm saying that there are things that are left out there are things that are wrong there are things that I can't see there are gaps in my own knowledge um, and by acknowledging that I feel like it's a, it's a, it can be a more honest text actually
2: okay and, and, uh, and I think too um, no one knows it all even the people with the post-its that's right <laughs> So, do you want to tell them one of the big differences, um, besides the time frame for our, from our books, is that you you chose uh, my my book is told first person. So Meridian is telling her life from age eighty six, eighty seven, going backwards, um, and she talks about her life. So she's telling her life as an older woman, and you chose um, third person plurals. So um, for those of you who haven't read Teresha's book, she she says we were the women who, and we did this, and it's it's we. And so I, I know everybody asks you this question, but it's an unusual choice, and I wanted to to ask you if you would talk about why you made that choice and what it let you do that, for example, first person wouldn't have let you do. Yeah, there are um,
0: there's so many ways to answer that question. I've been thinking a lot about point of view and how um, what we choose both limits and and gives us more space. So the practical answer is that I was researching the book. Um, I had been doing all this work around Hanford in Richland, Washington, the home of the atomic bombers. And I was thinking about what that meant to have an atomic bomb mascot in contemporary America. And That led me to research things like radioactive animal farms that were occurring during the Cold War and um, thinking about nuclear waste. And so that's where I was. I was just off in this world, um, spinning my wheels, really. I had created so many pages, and I felt just bewildered by all of the information. And I came across a memoir by Leona Libby and she's writing about her involvement with uh, the making of the atomic bomb and she said I never understood why Enrico Fermi's wife, Laura, never liked me. And so then I thought, wait a minute, Enrico Fermi's wife, who was she? What was her life like? Who are these voices? I have to know this. This is the voice that hasn't been told. And that led me, so you can see my research has just been leading me along. Um, As much as I tried to wrangle it, it was really leading me. And that led me to the Los Alamos Historical Society's oral histories, And I was listening to Françoise Ulam, and she was being asked what it was like to live in Los Alamos, and she said, there were parties and flirtations, and we all, and we all, and we all, and we all. And then I, I, so we all had these stoves named Black Beauty. We were all all arguing with the military not to extend the firing range. We were all um, hosting cocktail hours. And then I started listening to the other ones, and they were all saying, We all did this. We all did this. And I realized the we was not so much the partnership, the man and the woman, but the we was the women. And that together they had this group identity. So the voice came to me first thinking we. Not really sure why that, you know, understanding that that had happened, but not knowing Um, not thinking consciously of all the things that came later. So craft-wise, what happens? You have a we, and that means that I can include so much. I can tell all of these stories. Mm -hmm. But I'm also, I think, um, destabilizing one story. So sometimes people are like, but where are the characters? Like, who are the people? You know, I want to follow the story. Um, But the truth is, for me, it seemed like... um, it was a way to explore this tension between the individual that we, the individuals that we all are, and the groups that we are all a part of, and how we feel that push and pull within those groups. So I think what it afforded me, and, and then finally, I think um, there was a sense of destabilizing one set narrative, because I'm not like I was like this and she was like this, but um, our husbands came home and said we're going to the west, and they couldn't tell us where, or. A man at the door in a pork pie hat came in and said, "Is the professor home? Is, is the professor home?" Or um, one day our husbands were sent away. So there's this multiple happening at the same time that I was hoping would say it wasn't like one way for any one person. Mm-hmm. It was the multiple. Mm-hmm. So that's why I chose the point of view. But I won't be writing it again. <laughs> it was really fun, and um, I'm thinking about what to do, you know, always trying out different point of views and what that gives you. The third person plural, the they, so they did this and they did that. Juliana Spar has this great book called The Transformation in which there's a they that go to Hawaii and one of them teaches and they're all writers and they're living together. And that's a really wild point of view to think about how we want to place um, blame or love on one person and we have to then see it as a they, which is very odd, and I love it. Um, how did you decide on first person?
2: You know, there was just no question for yeah. me. It, it, it just was always that, and mostly because of the, the ability it gave me to truly um, understand this person's motivations, her fears, her joys, her confusion, um, her anger, and uh, everything about her... Um, it it let me dive as deeply as possible into one creature, and that's really what I wanted to do. And and her perceptions of the world around her, whether anyone agrees with them or not, um, her perceptions of some of the other women in Los Alamos, um, the times where, for example, she was put down because she only had a master's degree. And I, I looked at the figures this morning because I was curious. In 1947 less than 5% of college graduates were women in the United States. Less than 5%. And of those, I don't have the figures, but you can well imagine that what a really small percentage of those women were in the hard sciences, as my character was. Um, So she's an outlier from the start. And yet, in Los Alamos, there are women who, who put her down because she doesn't have a Ph.D. or a graduate degree. Um, and so I also wanted to show some of the – as much as I love Los Alamos and as much as I, um, I benefited, again, from the formidable talents of many of these women, um, I wanted to show, frankly, a little bit of snobbery and um, a – um, and I think, that's, I think that's actually in your book, too, um, the idea that there were these people on the hill, and then the people came from the valley to clean their houses. Um, and I wanted to do that without, you know, hitting people over the head with a hammer, but to say it's, it, it was there. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think a lot of people have done that. Yeah, there's that. I mean, and there's also there's levels of class um, and wealth. There's the
0: bathtub row home, and then there's the where, where you're located, what location. Would you do a, a wonderful job of of indicating what spot in Los Alamos and how that would tell us something about who they were and where they're coming from, um, which I find just lovely.
2: Yeah. Well, tell me because your book's been out for a while now, and. Um, what what changes has it brought to your life, if any?
0: The the publishing of the book. Well, I think you know there's something exhilarating about exhilarating and terrifying about writing a novel, and then it's published, and then people are reading it. Maybe you hope. Um, and and so that's been lovely. Uh, more practically, like I got a job. I got a, I teach at Miami <laughs> University of Ohio, and so one needs a book. Um maybe to, to, to get a teaching job so that happened also I'm aware of audience now so I've met people and I'm thinking about them and then trying not to think about them when I write because I don't want to disappoint right? Um, and, so there, and so there's that a little bit um, and the people asking what's next but all around it's been really wonderful I, I don't, have you what is it like for you on that just you know, just released the book well,
2: fulfilling it, that dream it's, it, it, it's I'm not sure if it will ever really sink in. Is I think how I would say it because there are times you know I'll I'll prop up the book on my bookshelf in the living room and every once in a while I'll look up and I'll think oh man I I mean that's my book and it only took 60 years, (laughs) Um, gosh, but I um I I have in I've learned a great deal. Um, I've learned a great deal about myself in the process. I've learned, uh, with respect to travel and communicating with audiences, because it's such an intensely isolated thing that you sit in your little house, in your little room every day, and you sit at the computer screen, or or however you write, and occasionally I go outside and walk and and try to figure out what I'm going to do next and then I go back in and do that some more. There can be days where the only people I talk to are people I say hello to when I'm walking my dog. And and so it's very isolated and then you switch gears and you go out, kind of hit the trail um, and and meet audiences and talk with people. It's really affirming to have people read your words and be moved by them and say that they were meaningful. That's That's exactly why I sit at that little table every day, is so that that the stories will be heard and felt. And so that means a great deal to me that that's happened and that it is continuing to happen. Um, I found it interesting when I talk about how I see the world has changed for women. Um, There are younger women who, for example, think that Alden is too autocratic. For example, he controls all the money. And they'll be shocked by that, and they find it unbelievable. And all I can think is, oh, yeah, well, (laughs) that's the way it was. Um, And so I'm struck by the amount of change in a fairly short period of time, not short enough, but in 50 years. And... um, So I'm struck by that, and I get that from audiences. Um, I've talked a lot about when sacrifice is noble, and I've encouraged people to think about that kind of knee-jerk thing that we've been taught, that it's always noble to sacrifice yourself for someone else, and I don't believe that anymore. Um, Not if it's not willing, (laughs) and not if it's not conscious. And I had a young man come up to af- to me um, after a-, a talk I did on the West Coast, and he said to me, oh, now I'm really confused because I thought it was noble that I'm supporting my wife who is an artist. <laughs> and I thought, a man is asking me this question. Um, because that's, again, a shift. Um, men were taught, I mean, just as my, my person didn't get her life, men didn't get their lives either. I, I have... I I did a um, presentation at a cocktail party in Indianapolis, and a whole bunch of drunk attorneys came up to me afterwards and said, God, we wish we could do what you were doing. You know, and I said, well, what's stopping you? Mm -hmm. I mean, I know what stopped me, but what's stopping you? And they'd say, well, you know, my wife wants the house. The kids need to go to college. and And I'd say, figure out another way then, because life is short. Life is short. So I'm seeing there's some fun switches that that are occurring in society and I feel good that I'm seeing young men who are performing very different roles than than what I grew up with and it makes me feel really good about what we've achieved I, I think we have a long way to go um, I spoke with one editor um, when you when your book goes out for sale you talk with different editors who are interested in your book and you kind of they apparently want to see that you 're not crazy um, that 's what I was told <laughs> because they want to be able to work with you, so are they crazy no she 's okay. But I had this one editor say to me, "Are you sure your book is still relevant?" and he asked me that question on the very day Congress was debating the Fair Pay Act for women. And I thought, you will never touch my book. It will sit in a closet in the dark. Because if you think that this is not still an issue in this country, you're crazy. And so just as I was going to hide the fact that I'm 60, um, I was going to hide the fact that this is a pretty feminist book. And I still think it's relevant. I still think we need it. Um, I'm very passionate about that. Um, In New Mexico... Teenage girls not only have the highest rate of first pregnancies but second teen pregnancies second and and as long as girls are still in many ways throwing opportunity away with both hands i think I think it 's still a relevant book so
0: do you think Los Alamos and the women who live in Los Alamos do you think that the culture surrounding los alamos how has it changed for instance? I mean not do you think of course it has changed, but what makes does Los Alamos almost have a certain uniqueness, a feeling to it now. How has it changed for You're you? You make me stop talking about women's rights, aren't you?
2: No, <laughs> no, um, it's about women. <laughs> no. um, between the time I lived there before and now, um, one of the biggest changes I've seen is my parents' generation. They were the generation who had gone through the Great Depression. They were very frugal. They didn't spend a lot of money. So you had cars, you know, that could have been duct taped together, frankly, by scientists. You know, they would they would spend all kinds of time creating a little bolt to fix a machine rather than going out to buy it. Um, now I see um, BMWs and Audis and, and it, it, people have spend money in ways that they didn't then. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I see is that the security that had kind of faded out is back. To some degree, because of 9/11, so there are security checkpoints around town that I assiduously avoid because I have no clearance and I have, you know. So um, I find it intimidating. Um, so I see that. Uh, are there are there still people who are incredibly bright and intensely interior? Yes. Does that mean that they don't take the time to cultivate social skills? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I have a neighbor I've lived across the street from now for a year and a half. Um, he's a microbiologist. He has never made eye contact with me. Not yet. Not yet. I've given up saying good morning or something like that because it's clearly a waste of time. But I've, I've also understood, you know, it's not personal. He's in another world. He's in another world. Yeah. Um, your book, is there anything you would change now that it's been out? for a while.
0: It's it's hard. I think well, there's nothing like opening your book and you're about to read it in front of people to do something to your editing process. So I am, like, writing, you know, marking out sentences as I go. Um, every every time I read, almost. At this point, it, you know, with The Wise of almost it's set. But I, I but I'm, I realize how much I can cut. And I started as a poet, so I'm very interested in the least amount of words. And what is the least amount of words I can say this in? And, and, and so I'm cutting, I'm cutting. Um, so there's that. I would edit it down even more, even mm-hmm. though I had it's It's a small book when I turned this manuscript in, it was a hundred and forty five pages. Don't tell anyone they just like make it they just shorten the book a little bit, so it's more pages. But it was very brief it's It's a very brief book because i I felt like I could say what I needed to say in as few amount of words as possible um there's this one chapter on ants that I was just in love with, ants flying and their mating rituals. It doesn't really need to be there, but I kind of like it as this. Um, oddity that that doesn't quite fit, and um, so so even that I love. I I, I I want to embrace all the flaws of it. How do you feel about yours?
2: Um, I would see I'm different. I would want it longer.
0: Hmm.
2: Um, and and that's not just because I used to get paid by the hour to write briefs, and so it would take longer. That's not it. Um, I. I like detail very much. I'm very detail-oriented. That's how I see the world. And um, I, you know, I might put in even more about the crows. My character watches crows. That's she, she tries to adapt to the fact that she can't have a formal graduate education, and so she observes crows in a canyon in Los Alamos. And she, those crows, for her tend to help her understand human relationships. She watches the pair bonding between crows. Crows mate for life. They aren't necessarily monogamous, though. And so she watches those kinds of behaviors. She watches how they take care of each other, uh, crows. And and just um, I be, I'm fascinated by crows and their intelligence. And so I would probably risk putting even more about that in the book. It's funny because that's been rewarding. A lot of people have said to me, I don't look at crows the same way after reading your book. Um, They're different to me now. And that's the best thing I could hear because they're extraordinary birds. The the hard thing for me was not to put in things that Meridian wouldn't have known in her time that we know now about crows. Um, But, for example, they are capable of facial recognition they can tell individual people apart. They can associate good and bad behavior with those people. And then they can even teach their young the same information. So they can pass it from one generation to the next. It's fascinating.
0: I, I loved know. that part. And they, they outsource. So they let, um, they let the cars run over the nuts, and then they'll, and then they'll take the pieces, which I, I learned from your book. Um, which leads me to another question about research. Did the research ever... Um, hinder the writing and 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 how did what was your research process like for this book because there are so many lovely details about about science and about crows and about the historical time period
2: i think um the crow research could have hindered the writing just because i would get so into it i I read so many books and then and you know run around talking to people about crows until they left politely but um So that, for the most part, the crow research, I read books. Um, I did some online um, research just in terms of crow funerals to see what people's experiences were with crow funerals because crows have funerals. Crows have funerals. I mean, it's astounding. Um, And it's reported many, many times over. Um, uh, The other kinds of research, like... Um, I mean, the Internet... I, I did think, well, thank God I waited till I'm this old to write a book because the Internet's here, and that means I can look and actually see a newsreel from a certain date in a certain year and know what people were seeing in a movie theater and be able to, to accurately describe that. Um, those kinds of things were wonderful. I had the, the incredible um, great good fortune of my mother's pack rat tendencies... She kept everything. And so, for example, I had a Life magazine from the week after the bomb was dropped. And so I had that complete with the ads that I could describe. Um, I had um, a brochure that she'd kept from Chicago from uh, describing what was showing at the various nightclubs so people can pick on that, but it's in the brochure. Did you research first, right? Did you write, then research? Did you, you were doing it all together? All a big mix, and um, because I would come across something and think, oh, you know, I want to make sure that was really in existence then. Um, I mean, because a lot of this, too, is my memory. Um, Not the 40s, but after that, and I needed to double-check myself on things like that. Fashions were really fun to research because you can kind of do a little nostalgia trip and go, oh, my God, we really did wear those. I remember that. So that was fun. What kinds of questions do you all have? Hi. Yes. You said on a
1: particular day it was 103 degrees, and it's probably in the town center of
2: not Where did was... you get that information?
0: <laughs> Oh, that's, that was for me. Um, I'm exaggerating a little bit. I think it was 101. And part of the issues were that the... Um, I did actually research the temperatures when I was writing the book, but the temperature data was not stored by the same people. By, now I forget the organization, but the same, the same government organization that tracks weather and temperatures um, did not during... Uh, World War II. So during those years that information was I don't know a secret but it was not found in the same way. So so that's why I was um, pushing a little bit. But I also, uh, a lot of my research were oral histories and so a great thing about oral histories is that people disagree about everything. It was like this it was the safest place to raise a child. Um, We were behind barbed wire and it reminded me of why I left Europe. So there were these these conflicts of information and I was th- interested in how all those conflicts play out so some of those conflicts were as simple as um it was in the hundreds and we were sweating and there was one i I really had about four women in mind that i spent a lot of time with as like i was researching them and one of those women is eleanor jetty and she according to her had fiery red hair and blue eyes and you might know her i don't know because she stayed in town (laughs) she stayed in town for a long time Um, and she wanted to be a, a spy, but um, she she describes herself as wanting to be a spy, but never fit in. And she was a she was a talker, and she you know feels like she socially ran the town and did horseback riding and all of that. So she was an exaggerator and a great storyteller. And for her, it was sweating and so hot all summer. And so that's where I got my research. <laughs> Part of where I got my research. Yeah.
2: Okay, and I'm going to repeat the question because we're being recorded and and I'm not sure if if it could be heard. But basically, the the question was: um, it's not often, it's not common to have stories told about women in science, and how did I choose to to do that? Um, I wanted her to be a scientist just as her husband was, I wanted her on equal footing with him. Um, And I wanted her in a hard science because that would be something he would respect um, versus something like psychology. Um, And I knew I wanted to do birds. Interestingly enough, it had been many years before I, I quit the law even, somebody sent me a list of bird group Names And my chapter headings are bird group names, like A Murder of Crows or A Charm of Hummingbirds. And when my friend sent me that list, I thought, someday I'm going to write a book and use those as chapter headings because they're so beautiful and they're so poetic. So I knew I wanted her to to be involved with birds. I also... um, I am, again, I'm going to hop on my women's rights um, horse... Uh, women in science. We need them. Um, we need to encourage girls to do that. This was a woman who was trying that at a very early age, and early on she received support, but then the support fell away. And I, I think um, I admire people of scientific bent who have that capability. I certainly grew up steeped in science with a chemist for a father, a biologist for a mother, and then... All the scientists on my street, um, you know, there was, say, uh, a chemist, a physicist, another chemist. Just uh, that was th- just my street in Los Alamos. And and so I absolutely love science. And, again, the detail observation scientists observe, um, maybe not social skills, but they do observe. And so I wanted her to be acutely observing her environment and able to pass that on to readers to help bring them into her story. Is that good? Okay. Yes.
1: I'd like to follow up on that. Um, You said your mother was a pack rat, and so you got hard information from her. What did you get in stories and that other
2: stuff? Okay. Um, uh, I started writing the book to her enormous fear because I had quit the law, and she thought, oh, you know, I thought I had all my kids squared away, and now here's one at this age, and she's doing this ridiculous thing. Um, it, was, it turned out to be the last year of her life when I started writing it. And I would go up to Los Alamos and talk to her some about her impressions, for example, of the first time she went into the town through the front gate and what it looked like to her, um, how that felt, um, to, to go when there's still tanks at the gate, um, how that felt as a civilian to go into that environment so I got those kinds of details um, from her before she died what I also got from my mother was um, a, a, a rather personal note but m- my father died very young and he was, he was in the lab and the moment he died we weren't in the lab anymore um, because his employment had ended, we were not part of that class, that, that stratum in Los Alamos. She was a school teacher and that's how she supported us, and she kept us up there in large part because of the schools, which were extraordinary. But what it meant was my mother was an outsider, um, and at the time he died, she had a bachelor's degree. And so what did she do? She got a National Science Foundation grant, and she hauled four kids in varying combinations for four summers to the University of Montana, and she got a master's degree in biology. And she did that in her late 40s. So one of the things I got from her was what it was like to be up there, but what it was like to be up there as an outsider and, um, and the incredible, phenomenal strength of the woman. So...
0: It's a great story. I wish I would have asked it. I'm so glad you asked that question.
2: <laughs> yes? I wanted to get both of your inputs. The choice of the word wife is very interesting. It's the couple I want to talk about. And you brought up the isolation of the job, Manhattan Project. Tell us what you believe uh, the benefit of the married person. Was to have a spouse in Los Alamos, and whether there were a lot of bachelor scientists, or I assume there were two types there were married and bachelor scientists. So, elaborate a little bit on that.
0: So, the question is to elaborate on the the potential benefits of being married, the role of the wife?
2: The role of the husband with the wife, the scientist with
0: the wife. So, talk about the scientist, the male scientist, the one that is married.
2: Do um, you want to talk?
0: I'm pausing. I'm thinking. Do you got something?
2: I uh, will always talk. Um, <laughs> I, it's interesting because my father was there as a single man before my mother came up and joined him. Um, he was actually drafted, and so he was in the Army, and he was a bachelor scientist up there. Um, and then she came up after the war. And joined him. So I can say from his vantage point, um, you know, he was in a kind of barracks situation versus getting to live in a house with somebody who cooked him good meals. Um, so there was that and living with a bunch of men versus living in a partnership. Um, in the long run, I, I you know, I, again, I think a lot of men achieve, uh, historically, a lot of men achieved what they did. Think of Wordsworth with his sister because there was a woman doing so much for him. Um, and so, do I? Th- I think men achieved more because they had a spouse um, providing them with support, providing them with intellectual um, fulfillment. Because these, again, these women were intelligent. They chose women who could talk with them who could appreciate what they were doing. And maybe they couldn't tell them the intricacies of what they were doing. But these, these were women who could have substantive conversations, even if it was about politics or something more man- mundane, um, and, and fuel them in that way. Yeah, and I'll add on to that. I, I think it also, uh, like any
0: marriage, depends on what your marriage is like, right? Um, if you have a marriage that is complicated and not doesn't doesn't feel good to go home to, I imagine that adds conflict and would would harm your work situation or put you more in the lab. But um, what I what I encountered was that a lot of the women seem to be navigating socially and communicating to one another and then going back to their husbands in a way that wasn't happening in the lab. So, for instance, um, Laura Fermi was working... she talks about working uh, at the hospital, and she was stamping the secret on things. And so she was able to go home and say, Enrico, did you know that such-and-such, and, such? and now this is her recounting the story, so I imagine he knew, but um, she said, do you know that such-and-such such got moved to this other location? And, and she would say, no, he never knew anything. Like, he never knew the, imp- he knew some things, but he never knew the important things like that. Um, but she, she liked to tease him a lot and tell stories about teasing him. So, so it seemed to me that the women were creating the town in this way that a lot of the scientists uh, were not. But there were also female scientists who were doing the work and doing both. And I think that there's still a lot of crossover to a woman who's working a full-time job and taking care of her family in which they're doing both. Um, so it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all, fit all but it's a great question to think about. I have an answer. Do you have? Go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah. People like Richard Fuchs, if you know that name, the spy. Um, uh, right, I think that's his name. Fuchs, Klaus, yeah. Klaus, isn't it Klaus? Kla- um, Klaus? Well, there was Klaus, and then there was another well, okay,
2: think Richard Feynman, though single? no, I'm not. Or,
0: there's okay. Klaus and Fuchs, I believe. But anyway, um, alas, the there there were instances where, and I'm kind of kidding because this was an instance in the in the memoirs that I read, women who said this person they they were asked to find spies constantly to listen for people who would be telling something, right? But they never knew what to be listening for. Um, but there there was this. Guy that really didn't draw much attention to himself. He brought over the best records, and he offered to babysit all the time. <laughs> that was the spy. <laughs> he was single, so um, so there was that. But I do think, like Feynman, of course, his wife was in a sanatorium, and so there were people whose partners were not with them. Um, and because I'm writing about the wives, I didn't do a lot of information about the single men. What are your additions?
2: I don't, I don't know that I have a lot to add to that. I'm, I'm not sure to the degree that, that they were mixed together I'm, I'm really not um, my impression was that, that they stayed rather separate but um, you know I, I just don't really know there were kind of community things like concerts and dances that I think everybody came to yeah were there any female
0: I had a question. Were there any female scientists? And uh, during World War II, yes. Um, I don't have a ton of information because not a lot of them were writing their stories and they had since passed the women that I had, um, when I was trying to locate women. But um, I know that there was one woman who um, is talked about by the wives as like having her skirts up a little too high and dancing all the time. And she plays music. And there was a bit of jealousy that seemed to arise from the way that she was able to be intimate with their husbands in a way that they couldn't because there was this secrecy shrouding. What, are, what are they building? Um, and that woman actually uh, went on to oppose uh, atomic bombs and to revolutionize the dairy industry in China. So that's one. <laughs> um, that was not exactly typical. But um, And then some women went on to write. The, Leona Libby worked on the Manhattan Project. Um, uh, Leona Marshall Libby, she, her name changed when she married. But she went on to um, write, to stay with the kind of work she was doing and then to write a book about... Um, you know, celebrating the creation of the atomic bomb. So those are some of my accounts. What do you have?
2: Well, and I'm thinking most of those women were single, weren't they? I mean, the, the women scientists who actually got to work were single for the most part. That's, that's yeah. my knowledge.
0: Leona Libby was unusual in that um, she was very pregnant when she was at Hanford in Richland, Washington, and she was doing an experiment and timing her contractions at the same time. Uh, n- nevertheless, she was pregnant, working in radioactivity, whatever, but she was waiting. Um, when can I go to the hospital? So she was one that I know, but yeah. But she was at Hanford? She was, that? yeah. Okay. But she yeah. was working on the Manhattan Project. Okay. She, she was primarily at Han- Hanford. She was at the University of Chicago and studying mm-hmm. under Fermi
2: okay okay i'm just thinking of women in los alamos and i'm i'm just thinking that again the cultural the cultural requirement was that the woman devote herself to the children if there were children and and so it would have been very very difficult to have both the career until later
0: but there were women that yeah there were phd phd chemist women and they just weren't they weren't working in the lab, or they were working in the lab and asked to take typing tests. I mean, they were asked to work in the lab to take a typing test to become a secretary or a calculator. So um, the other thing I experienced were married women who were working far below the experience that
2: they had. I did get something interesting from a friend recently. I found these figures just extraordinary. Um, the government um, Purple Heart medals. Um, you get wounded, you get a Purple Heart medal. Um, the government, before, um, in preparation for U.S. forces invading the Japanese islands, if that had had to happen, in other words, if the bomb hadn't been dropped, they had the, our government had laid aside half a million Purple Heart medals in anticipation of what was going to happen to the soldiers who invaded the japanese islands and this this man writes even in our restless century it took the country more than half a century to run through the overstock no new order for purple hearts was placed till 1999 i thought that was extraordinary and a side story about the
0: the question of uh, choosing a location, um, it was in what I do know is what happened here, which was the decision to choose who to bomb, where to bomb and um Kyoto came up and and a general said, No, 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 it 's too beautiful we can 't go there so um, the in fact, the opposite happened. I mean the same thing happened, but it was a decision about how can we use these two bombs and see what they do and Um, a push towards not destroying uh, historical construction. Yeah. Um, So we are nearing time. Last question I would love to ask you is, what are you working on next?
2: Okay, well, we can each talk about that then. Um, I have a book I am polishing the last bit of polishing then it will go to my agent it's um, it takes place in most for the most part Viva Las Vegas late 1960s early 70s kind of the tail end of the Rat Pack period um, showgirls and how Las Vegas is contrasted with what was going on in the rest of the real world Vietnam the civil rights movement and how women's bodies um, used abused and how we've changed That's what Ma, I'm working on.
0: Oh, I'm looking forward to reading it.
2: Um, I'm working
0: on, I'm finishing up a book about the Mayflower that tells the story from the perspective of the man who became the future governor, William Bradford, his first wife. It's from her perspective and the perspective of a girl who was sent away by her father without her mother's knowledge. And she's the oldest of four siblings that are sent away. So it's the Mayflower journey from alternating perspectives. Now that requires research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, they didn't keep the women... These two women did not keep diaries. So it also has that um, great unburdening of not a lot of data.
2: That's great. Uh, As for me, my Internet, you know how you get the ads based on what you've been doing? I'm looking at G-strings, pasties, (laughs) I'll let you guess what kind of ads I'm getting. Thank you so much for coming tonight and for being such a great audience. Thank you. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been
0: podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.